Welcome back, everybody, to another Darko Audio podcast. With me this time round is one Chris Witten. And Chris, I guess you would call him a, a session drummer or a studio drummer from... I hope he doesn't mind me saying this from way back. Is that okay, Chris, that I say from way back? Very old, yes. A long time ago. <laughs> i tell you what, it was. Um, it started when, when we were recording to tape and making vinyl records. That's how far it was. But also, Chris has just put out um, a melodic techno electronica EP on Kurt DiGiorgio's label, ART. So today we're going to hear from Chris how he went from... I guess, music school, Chris, yep. to recording as circles and ellipses. It's quite a journey you've been through. Yeah, so uh, effectively being known as a rock drummer and and sort of, in the end, classic rock drummer, whereas in, uh-huh. you know, in the background, I was always really interested in electronic music and, and more underground type music. I was never really that wild about mainstream rock it just i think people just decided that's what i was good at and i used to get hired for those gigs and and the sort of bands that i really liked that were more alternative i never got hired to play with those bands so i just got the reputation of being a classic rock drummer right so you've played with people like the Waterboys, julian cope uh edie Brickell. Paul McCartney and Dire Straits. That's yes. off the top of my head. Yes, is that right? right? That's right. Yes, there's probably more in there as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I I did um, a lot of studio freelance studio stuff, and so people people who are into that kind of music, the rock stuff, they mainly know me for those headline bands. But all the time, I was also doing albums with other people. Um, in uh, because you know um, the weird thing about the Water Boys and Julian Cope and that we didn't really ever tour that much. People weren't really into touring. Well, it was mm. expensive and it was uncomfortable, especially when you're at the lower levels, staying in cheap motels and driving around in vans. So people people would spend four four or six months making their record, and then we'd go on tour and it would all be over in three weeks kind of thing, which nowadays people are mm. on tour all year. So, but back then, so in the, in the time I used to be in the studio with a band like the water boys for maybe two weeks maximum. And then, and then for the next four months, I wouldn't hear from them while they were finishing the album, doing the overdubs and the mixing mm. and everything. And I, all that time I'd either be unemployed or I'd be playing on other people's records. So I decided to play on other people's records. So how did you get to play with the Water Boys? I mean, that's quite a result. Well, first off, I kind of decided when I was like five years old that I wanted to be a, a drummer in a band. And this was the mid-60s, so it wasn't like everybody, no, you know, kids weren't generally, they were wanting to be a train driver or an astronaut. Kids weren't generally thinking, I want to be in a rock band. It was quite in the early days. And... um and so 
as soon as I could, I left school because I hated school and I went to music college. They had this uh, music college that actually was one of the first music colleges almost in the world to offer drum lessons as opposed to orchestral percussion and everything. And so I applied there when I was Mm. 16. Most people went to college when they were 18, but I applied there when I was 16 and they let me in. And so I was there for four years. And then to cut a long story short, I ended up This was in Leeds in the north of England. And to cut a long story short, I ended up moving to London, the big smoke, hoping to make my way in the music industry. And I was kind of on and off unemployed for a while. And then I joined this funk band, all white kids, but this funk, this sort of punk funk band actually called Out. And we were playing pubs, Mm -hmm. unsigned band. It was a bit like, Before the Chili Peppers, it was a bit like the Chili Peppers. It was like a proto-Chili Peppers type band. It was quite hip and cool, actually. We had lots of record labels and lots of band managers would come and see us, but no one wanted to sign us, and it was a bit rough. Um, Anyway, we decided we needed an extra keyboard player and some help with the vocals, so we auditioned, and Carl Wallinger was one of the people we auditioned, and he was, of course, amazing. So we hired him to play in the band. And we did a bunch of shows. I got on really well with Carl, became good friends with him. And at some point, maybe a year later or something, he says, oh, I'm leaving out because I'm going to be playing with the Waterboys. And I knew the Waterboys were like a signed band. So I was absolutely furious. I thought, I'm never going to get in a signed <laughs> band. Flipping Carl's done it already. And so he went off and I was still grumpy, unemployed and doing pub gigs for no money and everything. And and anyway, uh, probably another six months or a year later, I got a phone call from Carl. Oh, the water boys need a drummer and I've recommended you. Can you come and have a play with us? So I was over the moon at, Oh, I shouldn't have said that. It's a bit of a pun. I was very thrilled to be (laughs) asked. So yeah, I went and auditioned for the water boys and I got the job. And the first thing we did was a benefit show for the striking miners in 19... 83 when Margaret Thatcher was closing down all the mines and um, yeah and I had a bit of a fraught relationship with Mike Scott because Carl had bigged me up kind of thing Carl said oh this guy's an amazing drummer he's going to be great for the band but then when Mike Scott found out I'd been to music college for four years he just instantly took a dislike to me and just thought I was going to be too conventional and too conservative and he was into the clash and the Ramones and what have you. And he just wanted to be edgy and rough and ready. And so he was always kind of against me. And also his favorite drum, the person that I replaced was actually his favorite drummer and a very good friend of his called Kevin Wilkinson, who'd left the water boys to join a band called Mm. China crisis, who had a few pop hits at the time. So Mike really didn't, didn't really want to replace the drummer. He just had to in a way. And, um, So when it came to recording the next album, Mike wasn't really too keen on having me involved. He he used to do a lot of drum machine stuff of his own as well, like Lindrum. Um, The previous album had had quite a bit of drum machine on it and also Kevin playing drums. Mm. And so I think he phoned Kevin and said, can you play some tracks on the album? And Kevin said, yeah, I'll be available for a few days to do some tracks, but I can't do it all. So rather reluctantly, Mike went into the studio with me and we had a nightmare couple of weeks where he just 
picked me apart and didn't like anything I did. And so I, I, I finished my allotted time having not really played on anything much and went back to doing the ironic thing was I was playing on some hit records with other record producers and everything, you know, but Mike wouldn't give me a chance. And, um, <laughs> then it was probably another six months. Like people used to spend a long time fiddling around with their albums and second guessing everything. Anyway, it was quite a few months later. I just had a phone call out of the blue from the Waterboys management saying they need you to play on a song and they need you to do it tomorrow. Can you get to Liverpool? So yeah, yeah, no problem. And so I got up to Liverpool, I turned up to this studio and they were doing this song, The Whole of the Moon, which was quite a departure style-wise as well from the Waterboys, normal sort of folky Irish rock thing. And um, mm. I think Carl was heavily involved in the whole the whole of the moon project. I think Mike thought it was going to be a B side or he didn't know what he didn't really know. He didn't know. Mm. He didn't obviously didn't think it was going to be one of his biggest ever hits anyway. And so he didn't really care that I played right. on it in a way. He just thought, Oh, well we need a drummer. Chris will play on it. No problem. And so in total contrast to the sessions that I'd done earlier on for the album, this is the, this is the C album. He, um, Mm. It, I just set up my drums. They ran the track. It was very Prince-like. It was like Space, uh, not Space 1999. It was like 1999. We're going to party like it's 1999. And I thought, this is right up my street. I always love dance music. I love electronic music and everything. And so I just played along to it one time through, and they just said, that sounds great. Can you just do it one more time? We're just changing a couple of things about the sound, and can you do a couple of different drum fills? So no, no problem. And so we recorded it second take. Everybody loved it. I packed up the drums and went home. And then it turned out a few months later that the record company were absolutely freaking out about it, saying it was the best thing the Waterboys had ever done. It was going to be a massive hit. And I think it was all a bit of a shock to mm -hmm. Mike. Right, yeah. Because it wasn't the first time it was released, to well, on the back of this is the C in 80, 85, or 86, 85? Yeah, 85, 86, I think. Whatever. Uh, middle, middle 80s, right? Yes. It wasn't really a big hit, was it? It was only a hit um, four years later when they put out that Best Of. So yeah. it was after Fisherman's Blues that the Best Of came out. Right. Um, and they had a single promoting that, and that's when it went to number two in the charts and was this huge thing. Yes. So I don't really understand why it wasn't a big hit the first time out. Well, it might've been a big hit because apparently, well, you know, everything in those days, especially in the UK, everything was about radio one. Everything was about top of the pops. And initially we were getting feedback that the DJs on radio one absolutely loved it. Well, Mike was always unbelievably hip, even when he was doing like ridiculously obscure records and was barely known Every record company in the country wanted to sign him. Lots of radio DJs absolutely loved him. They just loved his music and his attitude and everything. So he was he was very hip, but he hadn't had any hit records. And so Radio One were playing it, and we got a message. We were on tour somewhere in a minibus on tour somewhere, and Mike got a message from the from the label saying it's going up the charts quite well, and you've had an invite to do Top of the Pops which was like unbelievable in those days. People 
crawled over broken mm. glass to get an invite for Top of the Pops because it usually meant that your record would go into the top 20 or top 10 the following week. It had that much power. And so Mike immediately said, mm-hmm. I don't want to do Top of the Pops. And so we were all like scratching our heads. <laughs> oh, this could be a mistake. And it this argument went on for a few days and he was just sort of saying, you know, it's uncool. Mm. Top of the Pops is uncool. I don't want to be on the same stage with Banana Rama or jonathan king or some pop brotherhood of man or something like that and the clash and anyway the clash Mm -hmm. refused to do top of the pops and they've been successful so in the end he held sway we didn't do top of the pops that week and the record at that time was number 24 in the charts and the next week it went out of the top 30 so who knows it may have been a hit the first time round if we had done top of the pops did he do Top of the Pops the second time around, or did he refuse? I think he's never done Top of the Pops. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't in the band at that the second time around. We did a video for it, but the video, right. even the video, was you know a compromise because he wanted to do it as a live performance at the Academy in Brixton, and they filmed it. We played it with the backing track as if we were playing live as well. And then they filmed it and then mm. they edited it to the record. And so you hear on the video, on the official video, you actually hear the studio version, but we're all playing it live on stage for the video. And so yeah, it, was, it was a funny, mm. it was a funny one. Anyway, the thing was that when he didn't do Top of the Pops and the record dropped out of the charts, Carl and I sort of, we didn't really say it, but we both thought at the same time, this is not going in the direction that we want to be going in because it's good to be earning money. It's good to be paying your rent, eating and all that kind of thing. And so if somebody's going to turn down even a modicum of success, it's a problem. So fairly soon after that, both Carl and I left the band at the same time. Right. Was I mean, was that an acrimonious split or, or no, or was it, I mean, was everybody okay with that? Well, I think he would have been de- devastated that Carl left because Carl was like his right-hand man. I mean, Carl's an incredible, gifted musician. He's a songwriter. He's a great singer. He can play multiple instruments. I think when Carl started working with the Waterboys, he helped Mike a lot, you know, just arrangements and recording and and, and feedback. It was, it was almost like a Lennon and McCartney type situation, although Mike had the final... Mike was the songwriter and had the final say, but I think Carl had a lot of input and was Mm. like his right-hand man. So I think he would have been devastated that Carl left. And I think that has been, yes, very acrimonious. There's been various magazine interviews where Carl's spent a whole interview slagging off Mike and then another magazine where Mike spent a whole interview slagging off Carl. So, and I don't think, I think mine was... I've never read those. (laughs) Oh yeah, I'll send them to you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've uh, and there's a lot of argument about the whole of the moon as well. Mike has kind of downplayed Carl's involvement in the whole of the moon, I think, in the past, and sort of said it was all him and Carl didn't do that much. Which, for my impression, I think Carl did a lot on that track because there's a, there's bass synth on it. There's 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 synth keyboards on it, which were not on any other Waterboys track. You know, it, it was really like a it's almost like a world party record for me. Yeah, but it also might explain why Mike Scott decamped to the west of Ireland after yes. that to go and find new inspiration and yes, yeah, and come up with 
what ultimately turned out to be what six CDs in that Fisherman's Box yeah. that came out a few years ago. But obviously, at the time, it was only a single album. But the last tour that we did, Mike brought in Steve Wickham on violin, and so it was going in a sort of Irish rock direction um mm-hmm. on the last tour that Carl and I did and we didn't know that it was going to go completely Irish rock but I think you're right I think when we both left he just thought well I might as well do something else and I'm really into this Irish vibe and so I'm just going to move everyone over to Ireland and we're going to work with a lot more Irish musicians and yes that I think that's how that came about basically yes because Carl went off to make um, Private Revolution under the name World Party. Um, and I remember seeing the the lead single from that on a Channel 4 video show. I think it was called, I think it was just called The Chart Show or something like that. Okay. And it was just video clips. There was no presenters and nothing. Right. It was on like Friday, 5.30pm. And I think there was a lot of stop motion in the video. And that okay. was where I kind of was like, what the hell is this? It's a yeah. very strange record to be on this show which was mainly just chart hits but i think it may be because he had sinead o'connor doing backing vocals on that as well oh yeah yeah um but um but it was a more pop friendly record than i think anything mike scott might have produced but i know you have some connection with world party but i don't know what it is yeah it's just that i've since I've stayed friends with Carl ever since that first unsigned funk band thing, I've stayed friends with Carl. Right. And um, before mm. before he joined the Waterboys, I'd go over to Carl's and he had like a rudimentary sort of eight track tape player and he'd be writing songs and I'd hang out with him and everything. Mm. And then after the Waterboys, he sort of upped his studio gear and started writing his own songs and of course i thought he was unbelievably talented and and so i thought you know i'd love to be involved in this as well and so he was just recording all he was writing all the time he was recording all the time on fairly basic equipment but quite good for the time Mm -hmm. and um i went over i was i used to go over a lot and hang out and he'd play me the songs and i thought oh these songs are great and quite often i would play on songs and um or he would even say to me can you come over for like a week and and stay at my house and just play on loads of stuff and i'd say yes no problem and i'd do that and i'd play on loads Mm. of stuff but then carl being a multi-instrumentalist he would often completely redo the song a few weeks later and play all the instruments himself so I think I even, I probably even played on a couple of things on Private Revolution and never ended up on the record because he redid it himself. And and again, I, I mean, Carl and I used to have the arguments a bit about the music college thing. I mean, this has followed me throughout my career in a way that, you know, music college has right. seen more of a handicap than a than a positive. And so if if I played on a song with Carl and I said, you know, there's this weird ring on the snare drum, it's annoying me, can we fix it? He'd say, no, that's my favorite bit. Or if I said, oh, you know, I, I fell over a bit on that drum fill, can, I, can we just do the song again? I didn't know you were going to go to the bridge then and I was still playing the verse. Can we just do it again? He'd go, no. So... It kind of we used to have arguments like that and you're too much of a perfectionist and mm. you're too much of a studio player and and so i think in the end he almost preferred his own versions where he was playing everything so i i i definitely 
I played on some of Goodbye Jumbo, but even then there were songs mm. on that that I played on that aren't me because he's redone them with another drummer, Chris Sharrock, or he's redone them with himself playing drums. So basically I'm rambling, but to cut a long story short, for about four or five years, I used to hang out with Carl a lot and, and play on odd things mm. or just hang out with him. And what I ended up being on that was released was very little. I, I'm on the track, ain't going to come till I'm ready. And I think I played on Way Down Now, but it's not me on the album. It's Chris Sharrock and just various things like that. He would redo stuff when I wasn't around. And he's also one of those guys. I've always been a sort of a bit of a nine to fiver. I can keep going till midnight, but he'd be the kind of person that would get up at five o'clock in the afternoon and only start working at midnight and I was already flagging by then so right. he'd end up doing a lot of stuff at three or four o'clock in the morning while I was asleep I just can't relate to people like that I mean I'm like you I just with the idea of working all night means I, just, I will just never sleep during the daytime yeah so yeah I can definitely see that there's an, in, in, an incompatibility there so what did you do after sort of Waterboys World Party. Yes, Where did I, you go next? I was I was just doing freelance stuff around London, playing on pop albums. I did Swing Out Sister. I did Tracy Ullman and things like that. And did some Tom huh. Jones even. And um, <laughs> I had a phone call from somebody. It all used to come through phone calls from management companies. And I had a phone call. This guy Julian Copes doing a record would you be interested in playing on it? So I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And he was in the the Liverpool explosion of the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Teardrop Explodes was his band, and then they they came along. They were almost the same band as Echo and the Bunnyman. They had a lot of the same members who would play on each other's records. And so I loved that music. I used to love Echo and the Bunnymen. And, right. and so I did, and so I was when I realized that was Julian Cope, I said, yes, I'd really like to plan that. So I went up to the studio in Cambridge and it was all very strange. Julian was in his sort of LSD phase, I think. And it was all a bit strange. He was like crawling <laughs> around on the studio floor while you were doing the drum tracks and things. But I, it didn't, I'm not a drug taker, but it didn't freak me out. I just thought, oh, this guy's a bit odd. I didn't really realize what was going on actually. <laughs> So that album came out and it came out massive critical acclaim. All the critics, NME and everything loved it. It was very weird album, but it didn't sell anything. Which one was it? A Fried, it was called. He's on the cover with a turtle shell on his back playing with a toy car. (laughs) So it's funny. Right, yeah. So after that, I just went back to doing studio work. I really saw my career, we'll we'll talk about this a bit later as well, but I really saw my career as being a studio drummer. I wasn't that interested in being in a band, playing the same songs for years mm. on end. And so I just went back to doing studio drumming. And then a, a year or so later, Julian Coates Management phoned again and said, you know, we're going to do another album and, and Julian wants to put a band together and he wants to get some really good musicians this time and, and put a firm band together. And so I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so he put me together with a guy called James Eller, a bass player, who had been doing Clive Langer and the Boxes, people like that, sort of Nick Lowe type stuff. 
and later would become mm-hmm. the bass player with the the on Mind Bomb and all those albums. Yeah, yeah. And so we became yeah, yeah. the set band. And so we we Julian had a bunch of new songs, but they all decided they weren't going to record them. They were going to tour them. And so we we went around a lot of places. We went to America a few times. We went to Japan. We played around the UK playing some of his previous hits, Teardrop Explodes and stuff like that, and playing these new songs. And so yeah. when we came to do the album, which was the St. Julian album, we had played these songs a lot and we'd refined yeah. them a lot and taken bits out and added bits. And so we went into the studio with a guy, a producer called Ed Stasium, who'd done the Ramones and a band called Living Colour, like a sort of um, heavy metal band called Living Colour. And he was just an amazing mm-hmm. producer. He got the most amazing drum sound. He got all these valve gear out. And I'd done a lot of studio work by then. And he I, he set mm-hmm. up all the mics and I was playing. And he said, come and have a listen. So I went in the control room and he played me the drum sound. I was just blown away. I just thought it was an amazing rock drum sound. And so we did a few tracks with wow. him. And then they decided that they wanted to have a slightly different approach on some of the other songs. And so they brought in a guy called Warren Livesey who had done Deacon Blue and people like that. And he later went on to become the producer of The The on Mind Bomb and those albums. Really nice guy, got on really well with him. And he was a bit more techie. He was a bit more working with computers and drum machines and things. But we ended up playing on the record and the record came out and it was a big hit. It was one of Julian's biggest hits. But at that point, because I know you're a fan of the later stuff, the, um, was it Jehovah kill or Peggy suicide or whatever? I like, but yeah, all of those, but you know, I did, I did look up, um, cause I know we've spoken a couple of times. I did look up fried, um, I think a few days ago, I looked at yes. the track listing. I went like, yeah, Reynard Fox. Love yes. that. That's Sunspots, right. yeah, love that. And there's, is it Oh Elegant, Oh Elegant Chaos? Is that on there? Yeah, as that's well? right. I think so. Yeah. So I think, I think I liked. I've I've played. This is kind of a, kind of unusual for me. I've played the songs, but very rarely the whole album. So I need to go back and listen to that because I reckon that'll stand up pretty well now. Even though, yeah, I do like the weirder stuff. Yes, but I think after he did Twenty Mothers, I no, it's Twenty Mothers and Interpreter. And after interpret well, which, whichever those two came last, I sort of lost interest really as the two thousands, you know, rolled around. Yeah, well, the the, um, the Saint Julian album was a departure in that he got a he got a good record deal with Island Records before the album was made, mm-hmm. and his management thought said, you know, you could be really big. And you write, he wrote very commercial songs, but then he would record them in a very un- uncommercial way. And he was really influenced by kraut rock and all that kind of stuff. And so he would use a lot of cheap Casio yeah. keyboards and all kinds of weird stuff. And, and we had a very young guitarist who was a bit left field, Donald Skinner. And, but they mm-hmm. wanted to make this commercial rock album. And so James and I were like the commercial rock rhythm section and we made this album. It was very successful in, in a kind of indie rock way. It was very successful. It wasn't as big as Coldplay or U2 or anything like that, but we had a bit of a hit with the mm. single world shut your mouth. 
And we did Top of the Pops and all that kind of stuff and did a bunch of videos and toured America. And it was a um, it was a success. But I think for Julian, it was a regrettable success because I think he found himself doing stuff that he didn't want to do. And he didn't want to do breakfast television and kids' daytime TV right. and all that. He yeah. wanted to be Kraut Rock and, and, and be sort of hanging off a mic stand, bleeding from the chest where he'd gashed his chest open <laughs> with a broken bottle kind of thing, which he famously did at a show once. And so um, that's what he wanted to do. And so I think as a reaction to St. Julian, he 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 said, I'm not going to do this again. And that's when he started making those albums that you really like, when he, he just went off on his own direction. But anyway... Towards the end of my time with Julian Cope, we were on tour in America and I got a, a message was got to me on a hotel reception. Somebody handed a message to me or something. Can you call Paul McCartney's mm. office? So I thought, oh, this is a bit out of the blue and weird. So I eventually found a way, because we had no money in Julian Cope and we were staying in motels. I eventually found a way to call Paul McCartney's office. And they said, you know, during the summer... Paul wants to hang out with some younger musicians. He's been playing with a lot of established American session musicians, and he just wants to freshen up his attitude, and he wants to find some younger musicians. So he's, he's having these sort of jam sessions in a warehouse in East London every week or two, and, hmm. and we've heard about you, and would you like to come down? So eventually, after the Julian Cope tour and everything, and I was back in London... I got invited to one of these sessions. So I took my drums down to this warehouse, set them up, and there was a bunch of other people there I'd, ne I'd never met before. I didn't know other musicians, keyboard players and stuff like that. And we were all standing around talking for about half an hour. Then the door burst open and in walked Paul McCartney and Linda and his Paul's manager and a couple of other entourage people. And at that point, huh. your mind sort of goes blank and I finally woke up mm -hmm. about two and a half hours later, realizing that the whole, the previous two and a half hours, I hadn't known what I was doing. It was just a massive blur. It was just a blur of, oh my God, not only am I in the same room as one of the Beatles, but I'm actually playing music with him. It was just weird. So at the end of the... It must have been an amazing feeling. It was quite amazing, but it, <clears throat> it was... As I say, it was more like a blur. You know, when people have been in an accident and they say they can't remember anything about it, it was kind of like that. And <laughs> as I was packing up the stuff, I, I've, as I, he left and we all started packing up, and I was packing up the stuff, I finally sort of came round and I thought, oh, mm. my God, I might never meet him again. And I haven't really spoken to him. I didn't really take it all in. It was just, a, I was probably just freaking out trying to play the right things and trying to impress him or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I just thought I might never meet him again. And I haven't really spoken to him and I didn't really enjoy it. I was just more freaking out. And so, oh, I really hope they call me again. Anyway, unbelievably, luckily, they did call me again. And I thought this time I'm really going to take it in. I'm just going to try and enjoy it. And, and just play some music and have fun and realize that I'm playing with one of the Beatles. So I did, I went down, I did that and it all went off very well. And eventually 
they similar to Julian Cope in a way, the management phoned me up and said, you know, Paul wants to put together a younger band and we've got an album planned and then we might, Paul hasn't agreed to do a tour, but we're going to try and persuade him to do a tour with a younger band and we want to relaunch him. He's been doing a lot of the sort of um, Rupert the Bear type stuff and he's really a rocker at heart and we want to relaunch him. He, he deserves better than what he's been getting and so, yeah, so eventually I ended up in the studio. Was this was this after the Frog Chorus or before? Yes, it was sort of at the same sort of time. It was a bit after, but he was still doing, right. he was still doing stuff right. like that. In fact, the most incredible thing about the whole situation was that um, they were just phoning me on an ad hoc basis because they didn't want to commit to anybody. They just wanted to feel people out. And it was a big thing for Paul to work with a bunch of people he'd never met before, and mm. especially young people that had come out of the new wave and stuff like that. And um, <clears throat> so I got a phone call you know, we've, Paul's doing some recording and he'd like you to play drums on his recording. So I went down to his studio. He's got a studio in the country, Sussex countryside. I went down there with my drums mm. and he wanted to record some music for one of these Rupert the Bear animations. And so I set up the drums and the next thing that happened was Jeff Emmerich walked into the room, the legendary Beatles engineer, and started miking up the kit. And then when we were getting the drum sound, Sir George Martin walked into the control room and he was going to produce it. So I was in the studio with Paul McCartney on bass, me on drums, Jeff Emmerich recording it and Sir George Martin producing it. And that was like the first thing I did with Paul. It was just incredible. Just history. I, I was a massive Beatles fan going back. Was that intimidating for you or scary in any way? Sort of. It wasn't on that day because because I'd done those jam sessions and I kind of, I was intimidated and freaked out on the first jam session. And I thought this is no good and I've got to try and enjoy it. And I've got to try and, you know, just show what I can do. And so by the time that I did this recording session and also I've always been a bit naive and I just, I just thought, Oh, well, what can go wrong <laughs> kind of thing. So yeah, I just sort of took it on the chin and did the best I could and everybody was very friendly and and so it all went off very well. And I had I'd done four years at music college and I knew how to play. It was like a sort of swing, slightly swing jazz comedy song for one of his Rupert the Bear things. And then the next thing that happened was they said, Well, we're gonna start the album and you are the only musician that Paul has decided that he wants to work with. So I was quite bowled over by that and so the manager said we obviously need some more musicians to do the album well paul plays everything he plays drums as well but he said we ideally we need more musicians for the album and so the manager knew hamish stewart of the average white band and they called hamish in and we didn't really so much audition because hamish is a legend as well written amazing songs for chaka khan and people like that but, you know, Paul just wanted to know whether it would gel. And so they we got on really well with Hamish. So we started the album, me, Paul, and Hamish Stewart. And then Paul had been writing these songs with Elvis Costello. So Elvis came down for the first album sessions, and we started doing the songs that Paul had written with Elvis Costello. And that's how the album started. Uh, okay. 
And then did you go on? You, you must have toured that record, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Paul's got his own studio and he's obviously a multimillionaire. And so we, over the course of several months, we ended up recording about 30 songs. And towards mm. the end of that year, Paul said, you know, we've got to get it down to like 12 songs. So everybody go away for the Christmas holidays or whatever and listen to the tracks that we've done and come back and, and tell me. He, he was unbelievably fair-minded and he had a kind of group mentality, Paul. He wasn't like ordering. He used to tell me I could play whatever I wanted on the drums. He, he was never dictatorial or anything. It was quite amazing. And so he said, come back after Christmas and mm. tell me which songs you think should be on the album. We'll see what everyone thinks. So the manager did. Paul's kids were given cassettes of the rough mixes and they had a say and friends of Paul's had a say. And so we came back and we argued a bit. And I think the manager was a bit concerned about some of the songs that Paul wanted to finish. And so there was a bit of argument about that, but we ended up with like 12 songs. And then for the next few months, we worked on those songs and there was mixes. So the album process took about a year and a half and so I was almost away from home the whole time for a year and a half because it was like five-day weeks at his studio in Sussex, and I had a flat in London. And he required mm -hmm. kind of a full-on commitment. So I wasn't really listening to much other music, and I was just fully involved in this McCartney project. And then when the album, when they were finishing mm -hmm. the album up, the manager finally persuaded him to do a tour. Well, he hadn't toured for over 10 years and I think he was incredibly nervous about putting himself out there again because he'd had a lot of criticism for all those silly love songs and generally for involving Linda in the band and for the Frogs Chorus and all that. He'd had no end of criticism and he just wondered whether he wanted to commit to a world tour and just get a load of criticism for it. But anyway, and the other thing that the manager mm. did, a guy called Richard Ogden, who did an amazing job, actually. Richard said to him, you know, you've got this, you've got this entire catalogue of songs that you wrote for the Beatles, that you basically wrote, because they said Lennon and McCartney, but Paul wrote his songs and Lennon wrote his songs effectively. And he said, you, you hardly ever play them. You've, you've, hadn't really play, you've never played a lot of them, and some of them you've played occasionally. You're crazy. You need to go out there and play these amazing songs. People will love it. And so he agreed to that. So we ended up mm -hmm. in, his, in this rehearsal room in his studio complex playing all these Beatles songs. And by that time, we had Robbie McIntosh on guitar and a keyboard player called Wicks, who were also um, studio musicians. They came on board. They were young guys. And Robbie was showing Paul mm. what the chord sequences were because Paul couldn't remember because the only time he'd ever played Sergeant Pepper or Help or something was the day they recorded it with mm. the Beatles and they never played it again. So Robbie was showing him how the chords, how the songs went. It was quite amazing. So anyway, we need to get on to the electronic side but um just to cut the story short we did this most incredible it's probably the best thing i've ever done we did this most incredible world tour with a mix of later mccartney solo material and a lot of beatles material that had never been played before and the audiences mm. just went crazy um at the shows, you know, you'd have Jack Nicholson backstage, Bill Murray, Michael Jackson came to a show, Stevie Wonder came on stage and sang with us. We had Guns N' Roses at one of the shows. It was just, I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not a um I'm not particularly starstruck. I'm not social climber right. or anything like that. But it was just amazing to be on that scene and observe it really, how the other half live. We had police motorcades through towns. If we arrived in Cincinnati or Chicago or something, there'd be police outriders at the airport and we'd be driving on the wrong side of the road all the way to the hotel with sirens blaring and everything. And, you know, just just for security to get him to the hotel. If there was rush hour traffic, we'd be driving on the wrong side of the road. It was just incredible, the whole thing. And then didn't you go and play with Dire Straits yes. after that? So... As I said, I always saw myself as a studio drummer, and I'd done the McCartney thing for three years at that point. And towards the end of the tour, I thought, I really need a break mm. because I've been playing the same song. Oh, amazing though they are, I've been playing the same songs for three years on and off, and I'd like to get back to studio work. So I had this plan to move to LA. I'd spent a lot of time in America. With McCartney, we toured a lot in America. And when we had two weeks off, rather than fly back to the mm. UK, I would just fly to LA and stay at a hotel in LA. Well, we all did. And so I'd mm. spent a lot of time in America and I'd met a lot of American musicians and stuff. And I thought, I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to be, this was a crazy idea because I'm not really good enough. <laughs> I'm not Steve Gadd or Jeff Beccaro, but uh, I had this crazy idea that I'd move <laughs> to America and become a studio drummer. And so that was my plan. And I had a manager myself by then because the contracts with McCartney were very, very, they were like 50-page contracts and I couldn't possibly understand them. So I got myself a manager. My manager had a phone mm. call from Dire Straits' manager saying, Dire Straits have seen Chris playing with Paul and they'd really like Chris to do their next tour. And so he asked me, and I said, no, I, I, I don't like the music of Dire Straits. I can't seem, and also, <laughs> I, I've had enough touring now. And this mm. went back and forth for several weeks. And the thing that swung it was my manager said, you know what, you should really just go and meet them. You might, A, you might really like them, and B, if they don't like you and don't offer you the gig, then you don't have anything to worry about. You just have to try and get the gig. And if they give you the gig, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So the mm. next time I was in London, I went down to air studios in the, it was in the center of London in those days. And they were making the on every street album and they were more or less finished. And so they asked me to bring my drums. I brought my drums. I set them up and they wanted me to play through the on every street album tracks that they'd recorded with Jeff Beccaro actually. So I played along with mm. those and they all seemed very, jolly and positive about it and uh, i got the call a couple of weeks later yes they definitely want you to do the tour and i was saying to my manager i can't do it because i've heard that mark Knopfler's a real tyrant and he hates drummers and i just thought i'd you know <laughs> if, I, if it was something i was really really passionate about um like dance music or electronica or something i will put up for the, with the fact that the main person in the band is difficult to deal with, but I, it's just a bridge mm. too far for me. And he just said, I think you're mad. Everybody thought it was amazing that you were doing McCartney. If you never do another artist of that stature, you'll just disappear into the mists of time. It's only going to be a year's work. You should just do it. It'll cement your place as a drummer who plays with major artists and on that basis, I said, oh, all right, 
that sound that makes sense i guess so <laughs> and it turned into a year and a mm. half's work actually and it was unbelievably grueling because mark was very difficult well he was a perfectionist which is fine but he was also very hard on drummers mm. and it was very grueling and it was a two and a half hour show we played a lot of shows every week and it went on for a year and a half and at the end of it i i just never wanted to see another drum kit basically i just i was just oh and also mm. guitar rock because <laughs> I, as i keep saying i was into sort of electronic music and it was it was kind of coinciding with the beginning of more popular hip-hop you'd obviously had earlier hip-hop um like the beginning of grandmaster flash mm. until the soul and everything but at this stage it was it was becoming um tone loke and a guy called Young MC, and then you had really commercial stuff like yeah, yeah, yeah. Ice, Beastie Boys, and I was listening to a lot of that stuff because I really liked the sampling. They they used to sample these old drum loops, and I really liked the sound of them. And I was a big fan of Kraftwerk and stuff at the time. There was a lot of that, and I was also a big fan of Parliament mm. Funkadelic, and they were sampling a lot of Parliament Funkadelic stuff. NWA, Public Enemy. I just thought it was incredible. And so the whole time I was doing McCartney mm. and Dire Straits, I was listening to that on the side. But Paul McCartney was late 80s and then yes. Dire Straits was early 90s, right? That's right, yes. Right, okay. And Good. so um, the chronology right, because I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm just trying to line that up with your musical tastes and yeah, your, 87, yeah. 87 to 90 was Paul McCartney. And then there was a year of 91 mm-hmm. where I was in negotiations with Dire Straits and the first Gulf War was going on and they decided they weren't going to tour during the yeah. first Gulf War. And then so then it was sort of towards the end of 91 into 92 that I did the Dire Straits tour. And I was kind of a zombie in that time in that I I sort of regretted that I'd agreed to do it in a way, but just because it was just very grueling work. And towards the end of that, I was just thinking, I can't do this anymore. I was getting, I had a PA system around the kit. I mean, it was la- it was a huge stadium. We were playing mm. to eighty thousand people, and when we started the tour, I couldn't hear the drums. There was there was two keyboard players. There was like three or four guitarists. It was just a wall of sound. I couldn't hear the drums, and so fairly soon into the tour, they built a mini PA system around the kit. And if I went to the sound check, and no one else was on stage, if I played my snare drum, it was like someone firing a cannon next to my ear. It was that, it was shockingly loud. But then when everybody, when we were doing the show, I could barely hear the snare, you know, it was just, and this was, no one knew about ear protection back then. There were, I mean, the Mm. police or the army wouldn't go around with ear protection when they were firing weapons. Musicians never wore ear protection. No one wore ear protection. It wasn't invented. The IEMs weren't invented. There were no molded earplugs or anything. And so just my naked ear was being bombarded with this PA system every night and very harsh frequencies, cymbals and snare drums and everything. And so towards the end of the tour, I was just having this permanent ringing in my ear and just the whole thing combined. I never want to play drums again. I, I can't go on or else I'll be deaf. And so at some point Mm. I was talking to this friend of mine in London who'd set up a home studio and he said, why don't you do music for film and TV? That's what I'm doing. It's really good fun. And 
it was actually a bit of a niche job back then. It's become very popular now, but it was a bit of a niche job. Not many people were doing it back then. And home studios were quite new back then as mm. well. Just Digital recording was just coming in. It was at the end of ADATs and things, and it was just coming into Pro Tools, which is like a hard drive recording system. So at the end of the mm. Dark Straits tour, I started putting together gear for a home studio and all that stuff was phenomenal. I mean, I had, I'd earned a lot of money with Paul McCartney and Dire Straits, so I had the money, but it was all unbelievably expensive, you know, like a sort of a computer with two megabits of memory was like three grand and all this kind of stuff. So I bought all this gear anyway, and Hmm. this friend of mine was very good. He, I said, I don't even know the first thing how to do this. And he said, don't worry, I'm doing some projects. You can come and help me and you can write some stuff and I'll show you how it all goes and everything. Anyway, uh, one of his projects, he was approached by Philips, the electrical manufacturers who'd also uh, pioneered CDs. Mm -hmm. He was approached by them to write the music for a computer game called Burn Cycle. And it was very in the future, very electronic-y. And this friend of mine was more uh, sort of rock and orchestral based. And I and I said, you know, if I'm going to help you with this, what I'd really like to do is just go away and write a bunch of electronic music and then we'll find a way to fit it into the game. And then you write all the filmy music, the orchestral stuff. And so that's what I did. I, I just wrote, I was really, oh, we. I didn't really talk about, at the same time, I just thought I've had it with guitar rock. I want to go back to the underground. I want to see what's happening. I'd also been away from London quite a bit. I'd been in LA a lot. I didn't know what was happening. And so I started going into the West End of London, the downtown bit of London, going into record stores, the DJ record stores, and listening to what they were Mm. playing on the systems and asking them, what's this? If it was something I liked, I'd say, what's this? And they'd show me the CD. And then I would just browse through the racks, electronica, ambient electronica, rave or whatever. And if I liked the look of a cover, it I didn't even know what the music was. If I liked the look of the cover, I would buy it. And, and so I was taking all this music home, and it was all stuff like global communication, biosphere, speedy J, uh, the stuff that I really fell in love with. Um, you know, that's the stuff that yeah, I right. would listen to now. And and I was heavily influenced by all that. And so when we were doing this burn cycle project, I said, I just want to do a bunch of like ambient tracks, some techno type, early techno type tracks. I didn't even know what I was doing really. So we did this music <laughs> and it was for a computer game that Philips had developed. And it was for a new platform called CDI. And around the time, I think Nintendo was coming out or Game Boy, whatever, CDI never took off. The computer game almost sank without a trace. It had a bit of a hardcore following. But the music lived mm. on. And, and as the internet developed, people were uploading the music, a lot of the music that I did, especially the, the dancey tracks, to really? YouTube. Oh. And then you would, you would go on YouTube and you'd see this music on there. And people would be commenting, oh, I used to love this game. I really love the music and I wish you could still buy it. And 
And so only a couple of years ago, actually, a guy called John Cunningham, who runs Here and Now Records in London, contacted me and said, you know, this is this has got such a cool reputation, this soundtrack, I'd like to put out an album of it. And so he re-released the huh. album with a lot of my electronic music on it. And my electronic music, firstly, it was very naive. And secondly, it was just at the dawn of when I was listening to these people for the first time, Banco de Gaia, Speedy J, and, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I said to him, hmm, what I'd really like to do is do like modern remixes. I'll just use these as inspiration and do some modern tracks, you know, because I know a lot more about it now. And so he said, that sounds fine. And there was no pressure. Mm. He, he just said, well, we'll put out the album anyway. And if we if we like your remixes, we could put those out as well. And so I, about mm. two years ago, I started working on a first circles and I decided to call it circles and ellipses because I, I decided Chris Witten wasn't underground techno enough. So I called it circles <laughs> and ellipses and I started working on this stuff. And the good thing about it was there was no pressure. He just said, you know, send me what you've done and we'll say whether we like it or not. And, and so I just started working and I ended up working on it on and off for a year, really just working on ideas, deciding they weren't good enough, ditching them, starting again. And so um, I mm. eventually finished it to a point where I was happy with it and I sent it off to him and he was really happy with it. And we put out the first Circle and Ellipses EP about 18 months ago, beginning of 2019, which was all goes back to the work I was doing with film and TV. Right, I see. So... I mean, I don't want to call it a reaction to your to your work as a session drummer because obviously, it sounds to me like you were into a lot of the same electronic music that came out in the early '90s that I listened to. Yes, you know, like those artificial intelligence albums. Yes, yeah, Vorteca. yeah. I mean, you've already got a guy. Yeah, I don't know about for you, but I, I mean, I find it really hard to shake that music. If you know what I mean, even though now I listen to it, I can I can hear it's a bit cheesy. Some yes. of it, not all of it. But something like Banco de Gaia's Last Train to Lhasa, I still play. I yes. still absolutely like, I just adore it. And yeah, maybe time hasn't been, time hasn't been horrible to it, but it hasn't been necessarily kind to it as it ever is. But <clears throat> I think, you know, once you hear music at a certain time, you carry it with you forever because it struck you so deeply at that particular point yeah. in your life. Well, the funny thing was, is that, um, when I was at music college, it was kind of the beginning of punk. The, I was at music college between 75 mm. and 79. Sort of 77 was punk's big year, but the, the dawn of punk was sort of mm. 75 with the Saints and the New York Dolls and all that kind of thing. So I kind of, the punk mm. thing slightly bypassed me and I was listening to all this fusion stuff. And anyway, the point of the comment was I could still listen to it now. I, I, it sounds like a bunch of men sort of self-indulgent, you know, 90 notes a minute. I, I don't love it now. I can listen to it now and appreciate it and remember those happy times listening to it back in the day. But yes, it's like that. But, but going back to the film and TV thing, so I was really, I was more passionate about electronic music than I was passionate about doing music for film and TV. But 
if you wanted to be like an electronic music artist, you probably weren't going to earn any money, whereas you could get a couple of grand for doing a soundtrack for a BBC documentary or something. And so my idea was I will become the go-to guy for electronic music in film and TV. And it worked a little bit. Mm. I did some, I did some projects that I really enjoyed doing, but then, you know, people would phone you up and, and ask you to do a project and they'd say they wanted a comedy trumpet or a xylophone or, and they'd give, or they'd give you 250 quid and say, this, this music needs to be full orchestra. And you say, well, you know, and you could do it with early sampling, but it sounded terrible. And I just wasn't prepared mm. to to work on stuff that I thought sounded terrible because I couldn't afford to hire a real orchestra. But in a way, you know, the film directors, they were just more concerned with it has to be orchestral. I don't care if it sounds naff, it just has to be orchestral. And this is the budget, 250 mm. quid. And so... I, I started to drift away from film and TV and I just thought, you know, that it's, it's, there's, there's enough stuff that I want to do to keep me sustained. I, I really want to do more electronic music around the same time on one of these buying sessions. I was in a store in London. I picked up this CD called check one and I looked on the back uh-huh. and there was a list of, jazz musicians that I knew really well, especially from my time in college that I really loved as well. Herbie Hancock, Eddie Henderson, people like that. And then on the other side of the CD, there was a list of all these people that I'd never heard of. And I thought, that's really interesting. What is, what is it that brings all these people together? And it was a compilation put together by a guy called Kirk DiGiorgio. And when I got it home, he'd taken the more sort of electronic sounding sort of disco era fusion of like Herbie Hancock and Eddie Henderson with modular synths and everything. Mm. And then done like a playlist of that with modern electronic music that referenced back to that, that sounded sort of similar. And I just thought this was amazing. And so it it was like at the beginning of the internet and there were a few forums and there were email chat lists and everything. And anyway, I spotted that Kirk was on some email chat list and I reached out to him as they say now. And I said, I love your compilation CD check one. And I love the fact that you acknowledge Herbie Hancock's role in electronic music and what an amazing musician he's been. And um, and then we became good friends and we swapped stories about working with analogs, old vintage analog synths and things and what a nightmare they were to work with and they were always breaking down and everything. And, and I started sending in my tracks and saying, I want to do techno and I'd be sending in my tracks and he'd say, oh yeah, it's really good except all the drum sounds are wrong and it sounds like someone who's been at music college for four years and all this kind of stuff. So... So basically, since since the early 2000s, I sort of drifted away from film and TV. And since the early 2000s, I've kind of been working on my credentials as an electronic musician, trying to get it right and occasionally sending Kirk stuff and him giving me, very fair, always giving me a good critique about what I could do better and what mm. he likes and what I could do better. And so when I sort of learned from all my mistakes by the time this opportunity to do the burn cycle remixes came up, I kind of learned from all my mistakes. And when that was released, 
it did pretty well and it was doing well on Spotify and, oh. and Bandcamp and things like that. And that encouraged me to do more. And also, mm. I know I'm sort of rambling a bit, but uh, over this period, no, not where, all, Chris, over this period where I was trying to get my electronic <laughs> music, well, going back to what we were talking about before with global communication and speedy J and everything, it was like there were no rules mm. Like somebody's album would be like 909 and 303. And then their next album would be like real drums and acoustic bass and things like that. And like voices from Indonesia. And there were no rules. You could just do. And that really excited me. I thought I can do this because mm. no one's going to judge me. And over the course of the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when I was trying to do my own electronic music, I got caught up with all these rules. And it was all a bit like, you know, if you're doing techno, it has to be between 130 and 137 BPM. If it's 125, no one will play it, blah, blah, blah. And the latest drum sounds mm. are more distorted and yours sound too clean. And it all became a bit rules-based. And the electronic music split off into all these sub-genres like tech house, house, um, ambient again, techno, um, mm. minimal techno, dub techno. And if you wanted to do dub techno, you had to follow the rules of dub techno. And if you wanted to do tech house, you had to use a certain shuffle in Cubase sequencer and things like that. So I just got lost in all these rules that I didn't understand. And actually, when I did the remixes for the Burn Cycle project, I just thought, I'm just going to do it. And if everyone hates it, that's fine. I'm just going to do it the way I think it should be done. And at the same time, I was watching mm -hmm. people on YouTube and there were people like Lone, he's a DJ from Nottingham. Um, there were people like that who mm. were saying, I love 90s music, I'm really influenced by 90s music. And I thought, well, I understand 90s music. I used to love 90s music as well, so I, I think I could do that. So it all emboldened me to start this Circles and Ellipses project. And... And then I started to even educate myself even more when Spotify came along and Beatport, and I started listening to Surgeon. And I could hear in Surgeon, he really, he was edgy and minimal, but he knew where he was coming from. And if he did a playlist, it would mm. often have like Stockhausen on it or some obscure jazz record or some world music. And you knew that he really knew what he was talking about. And that gave me a lot of encouragement as well. I, I thought I can relate to these people. They, they understand the music scene at large, but they've just decided they're going to do this mm. specific kind of music. And so that's kind of emboldened me to continue on with it. I think if it was the early two thousands and everyone was still doing all these rules. It had to be a certain drum sound and a certain tempo. I don't think I'd be doing it now. It would be too hard. Is this why your latest EP has, I hope you don't mind me saying this, kind of a, a 90s flavour in that it's, it's, it has that melodic quality that seemed to vanish in the 2000s and probably is coming back a little bit now. Um, is that a fair thing to say, Chris? I think it probably just reflects my own taste. I mean, I really liked mm. his Joachim, Joachim Pap is called Speedy J is his moniker. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really, that's what led me into kind of, they kind of call it trance a bit now, but for me it was techno at the time. It kind of led, I mean, it's not the Carl Craig 
Richie Horton techno, but it was to me it was techno anyway, mm. and it kind of drew me into that kind of music and his music was very harmonic and melodic i think he i think his albums aren't available on streaming services and i think he's one of those people that looks back on those albums with disdain and and doesn't like what he used to do i think really? yeah and and so he in in the even well, yeah, 2000s yeah all that stuff it's not on there you can't find it i know it's not on there but i, I would I'm surprised to hear that he looks back on it with disdain because something like, I mean, Public Energy Number One is just one hell of a record. I love. It never that, really yeah. gets talked about anymore. Well, I'm just guessing. I mean, yeah, that's. I, I mean, but I, that was a big departure. I I think either I overheard someone saying it or I read him say something on a forum sometime saying, "Oh, I'm not really into that album anymore" or something. There was some disparaging thing about his early work mm. which i think still stands up like you say it's all a bit it can be a bit cheesy but it's still you know great production and the writing's very interesting i think the harmonic content's very it's not it's not boring it's very interesting so anyway that reflected my taste and i thought and also john mm. from here and now i sent him a couple of rough drafts that, that were more clubby dark and empty and he said we're not a clubby label we don't supply music for djs you know we're a listening label and so what he liked about mm -hmm. the burn cycle stuff was it was electronic but it was very listenable and and so he said you know it'd be easier for me if your music was a bit more listenable and a bit more um melodic and a bit less just drums mm -hmm. banging away for 10 minutes. It's just not going to work for my label. So it was kind of led by that. But also I did decide that I was just going to do what I would want to listen to. And so it was a bit more, I mean, I really like, I really like the minimal, well, Kirk's stuff. And I really like the minimal surgeon and Rod Hads and all those people. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. Mm. So I really like all that stuff. I don't know whether it's in me to do it because yeah. I'm not a DJ and I don't go out clubbing every week, but I really admire that stuff and I really sort of look up to that. But I think my own music is always going to be a little bit more melodic and a little bit more harmonic. And, you know, with the with the lockdown and the coronavirus, I'm just wondering whether there's going to be a natural shift back to electronic music that's more listenable because people aren't going to be going out to clubs and DJs. I mean, mm. most of the DJs are putting playlists on SoundCloud and MixCloud and everything now. And is anyone going to listen to a two hour playlist that's just banging drums that you would get at two o'clock in the morning in a Berlin club? Maybe not. Maybe the playlists are going to be more melodic and harmonic and, I mean, I think that would be good. I think it just went a bit, A, it went a bit too rules-based. I mean, I'm not a techno expert. Kirk would be, probably be scolding mm. me right now because he knows a lot more about it than I do. <laughs> it all became a bit rulesy and it became very minimal and very dark. And I admire it, but I don't want to listen to it. I, I can listen to mm. one track and think that's amazing, but I don't, I don't want to listen to it for an hour. And so uh, maybe it'll shift. But that's what was was really good about the early 90s or early to mid 90s stuff even the biosphere stuff global communication reload all of that 
all of that music that came out, it wasn't designed for a club. It was like oh. taking the cl- club music sort of DNA, electronic music's DNA, and making stuff for home listeners. Like yes. it was explicitly made for that, I think. Yeah, yeah. So even even like Richie Horton's first two albums, you know, Sheet One and Music, were made f- for listening at home, even though a couple of tracks were club tracks. But they were so strange that, you know, they would they would be anomalous in a typical DJ set. Yeah. So I, I think that's why I really liked it. Because I, was, I was clubbing at that time. In the mid-90s, I was going out to techno clubs. But it just sort of coined, well, probably a couple of years after the Artificial Intelligence series came out. But I was really into the idea of going out to a club, but also listening to this home listening stuff at home. So that was a real tautology, wasn't it? But like <laughs> listening to you know that kind of music at home, yeah. or different variations of it, like LSG's um, "Rendezvous in Outer Space," yeah. which is quite a fast record now by modern standards. But it had such a, there was so much. It had that real introspective quality to it that I, I would just fall asleep listening to it. Yeah. Even though there was a kick drum through probably fifty or sixty percent of it. Oh right, yeah. So <clears throat> I think you've you've hit on a good point actually that. Uh, you know, with the lockdown, people are maybe more attuned to music that's more melodic than percussive, say. Yes. I mean, when I was doing that funk band out with Carl in like 1981, 82, we were playing clubs and we were playing raves, mm. illegal warehouse raves and stuff like that. And you know, everybody was like 22, 25 years old. And if there was somebody there that was 40, you would think that person is ancient. What the hell are they doing here? It's creepy. And so, you know, 10, 15 years later, when I was getting into electronic music, I just didn't feel comfortable going to clubs in London. Mm. I didn't want to be the creepy old guy in the corner. And that's even more so now, but you know, the, the people my well they're slightly younger than well they they might even be 10 years younger than me but the the people of my sort of generation the speedy j surgeon kirk and all them they've been involved in this scene since they were like 20 years old and they know all the people in the scene mm. they know everything about it and i just feel like i'm a fake if i if i go into their domain and they're comfortable in that domain and I'm not really comfortable in that domain. So that has kind of handicapped me in a way that that I've never heard my tracks on a massive sound system. And when you and a lot of these guys mm. when they're working on an original piece of music, they go and test it in a club and oh that bit doesn't work or the drums are too loud or whatever. So I, I don't have that. But that that I know from playing because I'm a very experienced musician playing in rock bands and playing drums, I know that when you play something mm. in a theatre or a, a, an arena, you have to play it a certain way for it to work. And so I think it's the same with techno and everything. I, I know that if I played a track where the drums were really stripped back, it would sound amazing in a club because the less is more and the space gives it more mm. power. And so, yeah, it's been difficult because I'm I, I'm not playing my I'm not playing DJ sets. I'm not a DJ, and I don't think I could ever be because it's mm. just too late to learn. And I'm not going out to clubs, so it's been slightly. I've just had to do it from a fan's point of view. Just just the love of the music. I've just had to make music that I would like to listen to, 
um, because I liked listening mm. to Surgeon and I liked listening to Speedy J and people like that. I mean, I was talking to uh, Mark Anestis last year. Mark Anestis used to be one half a basic channel. And he was, I mean, he doesn't hardly ever talk about his 90s work, but he did say that that when he was, you know, making this music with Moritz von Oswald, that they had no idea whether the the sort of the low bass, the sub bass would work or not. Yeah. And they had to like cut a dub plate. Yes. And then take it out to a club, try it, and then yes or no, and then go back. So really they couldn't, <laughs> it took a long time to make these tracks because they'd have to wait until the weekend. And, the, you know, so I mean, how, how do you judge that kind of thing in your home studio, Chris? I mean, well, no, I mean, I listened to a lot of, well, on my recording, oops, I knocked a microphone on my recording setup. I listened to my tracks that I was working on. I will load another a mix, someone else's club mix that I think sounds well produced and amazing. I will load that onto the same system that my track is, and then I will compare the two. And if their bass drum's louder than mine, I know my bass drum's not loud enough. And if if their lows are rolled off a bit to play on a big PA system and my lows are too boomy, then I know I've got to sort that out. So I'm really still... It's, it's, I'm still on a journey. I'm still at the beginning of the journey in a way that I'm really sort of still learning about mm. this. But, um, you know, what you're talking about, basic channel, they wouldn't have to do that now because once they'd done that for a few months, they would realize how it needs to sound. So you learn from experience. And so, um, yeah, I think a lot of these producers, they just innately understand now how something should sound to, to translate well mm. in a club. But going on to the sort of audiophile side of things, this is the funny thing about, well, they call it, in at the beginning of the 2000s, I was arguing with a lot of people online about Napster and streaming and everything. Anyway, the right. tech industry called it Music Business 2.0. And so that's what it is. We're uh -huh. all in Music Business 2.0. And so the funny thing about Music Business 2.0 is that we've all become jacks of all trades and you know, in my early day, or even throughout the 80s playing on these hit records, you had a guy that his entire mm. job was recording, and that's all he did. Then you had your record producer, you had your expert recording engineer, and then they might bring an expert mixer in. And to a certain extent, with your Beyonce's and your Drake's or whatever, Taylor Swift, that still happens. But for 90% of the music that people are listening to now it's one or two people and they've had to learn this stuff like, like, um, you know, Kirk and Tony Charles, surgeon, speedy J they've had to learn to become recording Ooh. engineers and we're often working in mm. non optimal spaces. You know, there's no money anymore. So people are working in bedrooms. They're not working in properly soundproofed studios with proper acoustic design and everything. So people are working on headphones at two o'clock in the morning because the wife's in bed or whatever. So we've all, you know, I, I was in the eighties. I just saw myself as a drummer. I didn't see myself as anything else at all. And when the music business changed and you couldn't make a living just from playing drums anymore, I realized I had to become a recording engineer. I had to become a composer. 
I had to understand how to program since I had to make, I'm making videos mm. now. I'm doing my own promotion, doing interviews and doing photo <laughs> shoots and everything. So you have to do everything now. And, and so it's, I mean, it's, in, it's incredible that records sort of sound as good as they do. And I think that's one of the things about techno is that it's very much sound design and there are some bad sounding mm. techno records that are obviously badly produced, but the best dance music or the best clubby music is incredibly well produced. And these people have learnt it themselves over years. And um, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, the Beatles albums, the engineers at Abbey Road Studios had white coats on and you weren't even allowed to touch a microphone stand. If the microphone was too low for you, you had to call in the engineer in the white coat to adjust it for you. As a musician, you weren't allowed to touch it. Huh. But now, now we're doing everything. So it's, it's, a, it's a weird one. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a hard job to, to, to get audio file quality when you're just teaching yourself, basically. You have to learn from your mistakes, I guess. Do you use headphones in your studio, Chris? Yeah, I'm all headphone based because I, I listened to your podcast with Alessandro. I was quite surprised that he said that he worked mostly on headphones and surprised that he said he, he works a lot on IEMs because the trouble with yeah. I, the trouble with IEMs for me is that if I, I've got funny shaped ears and obviously you have to have them custom made, but if I don't quite yeah. get them in right, the bass is is different, and I realize I've been mixing wrong because the bass is not sounding right because I haven't got the IM pushed in far enough. There's no way I could use those mm -hmm. headphones that are just non-custom IEMs where you just push them in and hope they sound good. So I use... Right. I really quite like the closed back headphones because they completely separate me from anything else but the music and and the other yep. thing about working at home is there's noise pollution you know you've got the farmer revving his tractor dogs barking outside police sirens <laughs> you know and i just if i'm working on music i just need to focus on the music and listen to the detail and it i just find it very hard to do on speakers I reference back to speakers mm. if I'm mixing, not if I'm writing. If I'm mixing, I reference back to speakers just to just to see if my headphones are fooling me on anything. But if I'm working on headphones, I can just focus on the detail and none of this aircraft flying overhead or dogs barking gets in the way. So, yes, mm. I work on headphones all the time. I've got these Audizy LCD1, which I bought recently. They're all right. They yeah, seem right. quite honest. Um, I was going to say, yeah, I'm, as I say, I'm still on a journey. I think I could judge the music better if I was listening on speakers. I'm still trying to learn how to mix on headphones. And often when I mix something on headphones and put it on the speakers, something is weird, like the hi-hat's way too loud or the bass drum's too loud or there isn't enough bass drum. And I, I just can't quite... Uh, yeah, obviously the speakers make the sound completely different from headphones. Actually, there's a very interesting mm -hmm. piece software plugin by a company called Waves called Abbey Road Studio 3, I think it's called, and it's headphone modeling. Uh -huh. And you basically, on your final 
master output. You you launch this plugin and it comes up with an image of Abbey Road Studios. And it's a headphone plugin, by the way. And it's mm-hmm. got a picture of the like the Yamaha NS10 speakers, which are the bog standard crappy sounding speakers. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of nice monitor speakers, like a barefoot kind of speaker. And then the big massive JBL speakers. And when you switch the plug-in between those three speakers, the sound in your headphones completely changes. And it is like you are sat in a control room listening to speakers. It's quite incredible. They've done it all with modeling and stuff like that. And actually they've got, they've got a, um, they've got a list of headphones that they've modeled perfectly. I don't own any of them because they're straight. They're a bit mm. studio-y, which I don't. They're like Sen, Sennheiser and AKG, which I don't particularly like that much. But uh-huh. so they've got, they've got common headphones that when you wear them, it is a perfect. It's a perfect model. But even with my Audacy headphones, it's interesting to mix a track on the like the NS10 model and then switch it to the big speakers and it just becomes so much more boomy and the low ends less distinct and it makes you change things in your mixes so i use that it's quite a good reference actually i mixed that the new ep the opala impala ep on kirk's art label i mixed that using this thing just Mm. as a reference just to hear what it would sound like on really big speakers and even with this modeling software it really does sound boomy and indistinct on the bigger speakers unless you sort it out. Something you would never really know unless you were using something like that. You know, one thing that I've never been able to get an answer to, and maybe you could shine some light on this issue, Chris, is why so many studios had a pair of NS10s up on the up on the the uh, on the bench at ear level. Right. Well, two. I don't know how they ended up being introduced into studios i mean the two rationales Mm. that i've been told by record producers they're not very good sounding and if you can get your record to sound good on ns10s it'll sound absolutely amazing on practically anything else so that was the first rationale and the second one is 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 um familiarity I know in your videos, you talk about using the same speaker stands, using the same components, the same leads and everything to assess gear. Mm, And I think that because every studio on the planet practically had a pair of NS10s, that recording engineers just knew what they were hearing when they, if they had to go to a strange studio to record a band or mix a record, at least they, there was some big part of the sound which was the monitors that they already knew what it was supposed to sound like so i think it just became a familiar thing for people but i mean they've gone now and pretty much no one uses them i don't think yeah i don't i don't know i mean i'm I'm not i've I've been to a couple of mastering studios in the last 12 months but they were both atc based i mean there were no no ns10s inside but that was just mastering so I don't really, I'm not really across it, but I just see see the NS10s in photos all the time. I mean, probably the the thing. Do you th- most of the people that I that I still see that are making records that are professional and everything, they all seem to like barefoot. Some model of barefoot, varying models of barefoot, either humongous big ones or bookshelf ones. But I think they started about two or three thousand euros. 
it's out of my league, but that's what they all use. they all say they they all rate those very highly. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? How that's a very well respected brand for guys that make music and for studios and things like that, and yet in the home listening world in which I operate, you know, they never come up. Nobody ever mentions right. Barefoot. I think the last person to mention it to me was Alessandro in right, the last yeah. podcast. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of it's it's super strange how. There seems to be this this uh, invisible wall between home listening and music production when it comes to playback hardware. I mean, I have a pair of Genelex here. I, I must admit, I don't use them that often, mainly because I don't get a lot of time to just swap them in just for fun because I've always got something to do. Yes. But I, I would happily listen to music on them. Yeah. I know some audiophiles might find them a bit boring or a bit unflattering, and I could see why. but. I don't know. For me, a good speaker is a good speaker, but I just, I guess if you're hearing something warts and all, and in the context of modern music being fairly warty, (laughs) covered in warts, maybe you don't want a speaker that's that honest. I mean, yes, if you're making music, but for playback, maybe you want something that's colored or can smooth over those skin blemishes. So you're not exposed to them quite as much. I, I, I just... I haven't worked it out. I, d- I just don't know. But I'm not an audiophile expert. I mean, I've been watching a lot of your videos for a few months now, which is how we've ended up connecting. Mm. But um, the right. not being an audiophile expert, it just seems funny that a lot of audiophile chat that I come across is about natural, being true to natural sources and all the rest of it and being neutral yes. more than more than colored and the funny thing is yeah is that the studio it's sort of in a way it's all about colored in a way but the funny thing is mm. that the absolute top level of audiophile studio gear is all gear from the 1940s, 50s, 60s. I mean, that is the ultimate gear. It still is. And so all Mm. these, when the audiophiles are playing the music back on a $10,000 turntable that's only a couple of months old or whatever and an amp that's brand new out, the music was made Mm. on equipment that was designed and built in the 1950s it's just amazing to me i mean my main studio snare drum which is recognized to be one of the greatest snare drums of all time was made in 1920 something it's a ludwig black beauty and i've used it on lots of contemporary mm-hmm. rock music and it sounds amazing but it was designed to play foxtrots and cha-chas it's incredible i mean one of the most desirable <laughs> pieces of studio kit is the Fairchild compressor, which which was made for like mono recording in the early days of recording. And then the Beatles made it famous. Jeff Emmerich and the Beatles made it famous with that kind of sucking compression. And now, you know, all the top mm-hmm. studios have at least got one of those and they're like £60,000 to buy. They're, uh, they're only vintage. Obviously, they're not making them new, although there are clones. Mark Knopfler's got a studio in london it's probably arguably well it's at least in the top three well-equipped studios in london it 
I mean, he's thrown a ton of mm. money at it. He's got three recording consoles. He's got a Neve console, which is the main console. That's from around the year 2000, so it's not that vintage. But then he's got an EMI Red, which is the original Valve console that they were using at Abbey Road in the 60s. And then he's got an EMI TG console, which is the transistor console that replaced the Red, which was Dark Side of the Moon Mm. and things like that were recorded on. We've gone there to do some drum recording. The drums just sound incredible through that TG console. If you put them through an audiophile equivalent, modern, you know, clean digital desk, they'd sound terrible. So I think we talked about this before and you were saying it was all about distortion. And Well, I think it's about distortion profiles as, as to what makes something possibly pleasurable. But one thing I wanted to ask you was something actually that I thought about again yesterday is that a lot of audiophiles, and not me, I'm, I hasten to add, <laughs> a lot of audios talk about um, the idea of an absolute sound that, you know, the pinnacle of home playback is where a hi fi system can successfully replicate a live event, but that live event is usually acoustic instruments playing in an an acoustic space, right? Yeah. Now for music that I like and music that you like and music you've played on, I think that's irrelevant. Yeah. There are no live events. Right. right. (laughs) There are no live events. I mean, albums are patched together, right? Track by track, snippet by snippet in Pro Tools now. I mean, I guess before then it was patching tape bits together and using the desk to, you know, to bring things to certain levels and mix them and pan and things like that. But everything is a, you know, albums are productions. So for me, a live event and home playback are absolutely two very distinct art forms. Yes. And I get different thrills from each. I was really shocked. I was watching a documentary about, um, it might have even been the Berlin Symphony Orchestra or some lauded symphony orchestra recording some work Mm. with some incredible conductor. And I was shocked at how much editing. I mean, they literally record hundreds of takes of like a 15-minute movement. They'll record hundreds of takes, and then they will spend weeks editing together the best bits of all those takes, which I I just assumed that you had a top orchestra you put them in a top studio they played the piece and that was the product finished but no they because everybody's become perfectionists right. i suppose but and if you can do it you will do it but but i mean recording ever since les paul started overdubbing and experimenting with delays and things like that there's, there's there is no live performance on most records um, even live albums aren't live. Mm. That's the shocker. But um, I was the last one to play on the whole of the moon. I mean, they'd finished the track completely and they decided oh, it needs real drum. They might have done it with a drum machine. I can't remember, but they decided it needed real drum. So I was the last person to play on the song before they mixed it. And, you know, that's the story of my career all along. And, I, th- I think I, I'm confused about this whole thing of of high-end audio needs to replicate seeing an ensemble in a concert hall because the whole recording situation is completely remote from that. I mean, you when you're when you go and see a band play, 
you don't put your ear one inch from the snare drum, which is where the snare drum mic usually is. You don't have 24 ears around the drum kit where you might have 24 mics around a drum kit in a studio. The whole thing is artificial. And ever since these guys like Jeff Emmerich started experimenting with recording techniques and, and Brian Love and all these legendary 60s people started experimenting, the whole thing has become completely divorced from a live performance. You know, where you put the mics, do you compress them? Do you EQ them? Do you flange and phase them? And then you're mixing them all at different levels. I mean, on the 60s records, you could barely hear the bass drum. And on modern records, the bass drum's the loudest thing after the lead vocal and everything else takes a second. So it's all very fake. So I don't, if you, unless you're listening to like direct to disc jazz or direct to disc classical music or something, you're never going to replicate an ensemble playing live, however amazing your hi-fi system is, because all you can hope to do is, I think this is what people should aim to do is replicate the experience the record producer had in the studio when they were making the music. So if, if you had a really, really good hi-fi system, it'd be great if your, if your system reflected what Speedy J was listening to when he was mixing his techno track or what, um, you know, Michael Brow was listening to when he mixed the Coldplay album or whatever. So I think that is the best that people should aim for. But how can they do that? I mean, number one, they weren't there. And number two, they would have to find whichever speaker was used by Michael Brower yeah. or by Speedy J. And yes. that, that would then mean that they would have to swap the speaker according to every album that they played, right? Yeah, if you want the well, studio experience for, say, David Bowie's Let's Dance, you'd have to find out what speaker was used in that studio. And so, I mean, this is the other question I want to ask you, is don't all studios sound different to one another? Yeah, massively. Like in the control room, and what what people hear in the control room, and I, I know the studio space as well will be different, but yeah, whatever the yeah. engineer is hearing isn't like if you, you must have sort of many control rooms, Chris. Yeah, don't they all sound different? They do. I mean, they take because they're acoustically designed to to sound acceptable yeah. to most people. They are heavily. They spend a ton of money on it, and they're heavily designed by experts, yeah. and so they take a lot of the room out of it, and so. I think a lot of mm. record producers, they either know the control room already, they work in the same room a lot, or they might take mm. their speakers with them in flight cases and set them up and they know they can trust that. And so they're working with a lot of mm -hmm. familiarities. They're not, they're not going to be transported into somewhere that's completely different. Now, the actual recording room that is massively different. In in fact, we do a lot of drum recording and we go to studios that are noted for having great drum recording rooms and they aren't a lot of studios. There's, you know, there's a few around the world that are noted for having a great drum sound. Mm. And then all the other studios have just got an okay drum sound that you can get away with. So all studios are different. Like the, the, um, studio three it might be studio three or is it studio two at abbey road has got an amazing drum sound where they did the early beatles albums and so people will book that studio just to get that drum sound yeah so yeah i mean the console makes a big difference like that emi console makes a massive difference we will book studios where they've got a certain neve 
console that we know always sounds good. We won't book a studio that's got a console we don't know anything about or is not is not what we deem to be a very good console. And so and answering your previous question, I think what people should do is aim to get a stereo system that they enjoy listening to on a wide on the music that they like or a wide variety of music like if your tastes are you like techno but you also like indie rock then you have to have a stereo system that works for both those genres and it just forget about trying to make it sound like you're you're seeing you know the pogues live just forget about that just just say i want this to sound pleasing when i put their album on i guess that's what people should aim for i mean that's what i'm aiming for but I'm not trying to benchmark it against some unknowable standard is what, no. is what I'm getting at here. Yes. I mean, for me, the idea of an absolute sound, a reference is just bonkers. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, I guess I, I just find it very hard to identify with audiophiles who do think that way. I can't criticize them for thinking that way because that's their own choice, but I can't connect with that way of thinking. It just, I, I find it a bit weird and I, I yeah. And it tends to breed a certain kind of attitude as well. Yes. I've, I've read mm. on like forums. I mean, I don't go on the audio file forums, but I've read a bit. And people get in all kinds of conspiracy theories about how the album is made and what people are thinking when they make an album. I was reading a thing <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I was reading mm. a thing where somebody said, what is the point of having a $10,000 amp and $10,000 monitors when the record producers mixing the album to sound good on a computer speaker or an iPod or whatever. That's just not happening. Mm. You know, these guys, I mean, the really good record producers that are working at the top of the commercial industry, like the guys that are producing Taylor Swift or mixing Coldplay and everything, They've got years and years of experience Mm -hmm. and it's all based on taste. You know, they are mixing the record to sound as good as it could possibly sound to their ear. And they've got a very experienced ear. And and then it goes off to like a mastering engineer Mm. who masters it to sound as good as it possibly can. Obviously with this whole um, limiting loudness war thing, they've been pressured to master albums a certain way. But as far as, EQ and things like that are concerned and balance of the instruments. The the only benchmark that people are using is their own personal taste and their own, you know, professionalism of wanting something to sound good. And so I don't know anybody. I mean, producer, just for the sake of reference, a producer will play their mix back on a home hi-fi little mini, um, like a, continuous system like a beatbox kind of thing or they might play it back in mono on a small Mm -hmm. speaker just to make sure they haven't made any terrible mistakes but no one's mixing to that standard Mm. no one's mixing to mp3s even people are mixing it so it can be the best it possibly can be and who knows what's going to happen in the future Mm. we might all be listening 96 24 in a year's time and everything has to sound good on that and so that's what people are People are mixing to the best of their ability and they've got incredible ears, much better than my ears. Yeah, so there seems to be a weird conspiracy that all modern music, because I think a lot of audiophiles don't like modern music. 
is this that they think that it's <laughs> it's mixed to sound horrible because it's mixed to to appeal to kids listening on a computer speaker, but I really don't think it is. It's just a cha- the taste in music has changed. I agree, and I think well, you probably see that a lot in the audiophile world that opinion because uh, audiophile the audiophile world is dominated by guys who are I don't know fifty plus. So yeah. that, really what you're hearing from them is just a generational disconnect because every generation as they grow up and they enter mid- middle age, look back and go, what's all this music? It's just rubbish. You know, it's, yeah. no, they don't make records like they used to. Yeah, Every generation does it. And so when you've got a sort of uh, a special interest group or dominated by that demographic, you're going to hear that more and more, which are, as we know, I mean, there is so much great music being made now. Yeah. And Absolutely. a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is made to a very high standard sound-wise. Yes. You just have to put in effort, find the time to, to locate it. But I guess the other thing is, is that as you get older, you do find you have less and less sort of spare time just to flick through, you know, just going through this track and that track and reading music press. Or maybe you just tune out of it. I think that's the other thing about getting older. I mean, I, I've got some friends who are older than me who um, – you know, really pay a lot of attention, probably like you, Chris, to making sure that you don't lose that interest in you know, reading about new artists and, you know, giving them a chance, you know, just to play them or whatever. And b- being very mindful of, you know, always discovering new music. I have one friend who thinks it's the key to youth, even as he gets, you know, oh, right. it's like the key to staying oh, right. young is listening to music made by 25 year olds. Always. Oh, right. I mean, this is what, this is one of his, his things but i mean for me the main the main driver for me is i've always been interested in innovation i mean i grew up in an era where every album that came out just blew your mind like you know i i was a kid when electric ladyland came out and you just never heard anything like it in your life what on earth is he doing with that guitar and then you know Mm-hmm. Herbie Hancock came out, Wah Wah Pedal on a Clavinet, and what is this? Every new album that came out, there were sounds on it. You, the drums, uh, the drums are going from the left speaker into the right speaker and phasing as they do it. And and you'd never, obviously, I, the first few mm-hmm. albums were I had were before synthesizers were even invented. They were invented in the late sixties. And so when you started to hear synthesizers on albums, you were thinking, oh my God, what is this? Early Pink Floyd albums and stuff like that. Mm. And so I've always been interested in new sounds. And, you know, in that period, well, in the music that we both like, the sort of indie rock and the new wave and everything, people were innovating Mm. in guitar music. And then guitar music, in in the dark days of the Dire Straits tour, I just found that guitar music just wasn't innovative anymore. I'd heard I'd heard all those chord sequences before. I'd heard a lot of those sounds before. Mm. And and when you talk to people about it, they always put up grunge as a great innovation. To me, it was just it wasn't that innovative. It was just you have a quiet verse and a very loud chorus and that was about it. And it wasn't that different to Julian Cope or anybody like that that were doing it 10 years earlier. And so really it's you can't right. you can never generalize but I just don't think there has been anything that interesting in four piece guitar bass and drums music 
the odd arty rock band maybe, but it's just treading the same water. And a lot of the innovation has happened in electronic music. I think Uh, you put, you get an electronic track and you think, how have they done that? It's, it's really interesting. So I have to say that I, until about 10 years ago, I was very, I was kept up on everything new and I was very enthusiastic about it. And I have to say, I'm getting older now and I have given up trying to like the mainstream pop. I just, I admire everything as a professional musician. I admire, I think it's all very skilled. It's all very clever. And I admire that these young musicians have done what they've done. So I'm not putting it, when you talk to people on the internet, they're all saying it's all shit and they've got no talent. And I always say they've got incredible talent but I don't happen to like what they're doing. So all the all the auto-tune vocals, right. all the R&B stuff, I've just tuned out of it now. I've heard it, the you know, like the Drake and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I just can't listen to it. Any, and, um, well, I can't think of the Nicki Minaj or whatever. I don't even listen to them anymore. I can't listen to it. Right. And so I just think they can do their thing. I'm not going to try and like it. Whereas, you know, there is a lot of young music stuff, which is the more techno type stuff that I do, I can connect to. But well, like you say, when you talk to people of a certain age, it's like the music industry stopped in 1980 and everything after 1980 was shit. And why aren't, why aren't bands still making records like the Eagles and Rod Stewart or, or Fleetwood Mac or something. And to me, you know, if they said that to the Beatles, they said the Beatles were outrageous and Elvis Presley tried to have the Beatles banned from America because he could see what a threat it was. But, you know, they said that about the Beatles mm. and if, if, if the Beatles had conformed to what was popular at the time with the majority, then we'd still be listening to the Everly brothers and the Glenn Miller orchestra or something. It would be horrendous. So thank heavens for young people constantly being annoying and doing things that we don't understand. That is, that is the lifeblood of all art and it's the lifeblood of music for definite is people doing something that you don't understand and you hate and maybe over time you un- you start to understand it and you start to appreciate it. You know, that's exactly how, how I feel about um, the last 10 years of Orteca releases. So it, not all not all of it, but it's it's become so abstract. And I listen to it and go, I don't get it. I just don't get it. But I love that this exists. Yes. Because it's just it's so alien and it's, and a lot of it's very cold and you just go, what the hell? Yeah. And I, I, I wish there were there was more music that I could discover more, uh, more popular music that, that kind of caused that feeling of what the hell is this? I don't understand it, but it's interesting. Even if yeah. I don't like it, we won't go on a, a, about it, but this is the thing. Well, yeah, I, I, we, we can't moan about it, but this is the thing with where we're at at the moment with streaming. <laughs> is that it it's really mm. designed for people to listen to something briefly and then decide whether they like it or not and then they'll either put it on their playlist or if it's a download they'll buy it or whatever and the the worrisome thing about that is that it could kill less 
um, accessible music in that it's encouraging people mm. instant gratification. And if your track takes five minutes to get going and it's all abstract noises and everything, it's just, I mean, you look at some of the, even some of the well-known electronic artists on Spotify, when you hover your mouse over the track, it tells you how many plays it's had. Some of them have had like 1,000 plays. It's quite shocking. And then you go to, mm. you know, a more house-friendly track, like a an upbeat house track, and it's had 450,000 plays. And so, you know, that's all right. If, mm. if, if Spotify is just part of the picture, that's all right. But if it becomes dominant, that scene then then the the records i was saying a while ago you know i used to buy an album when you had to commit to buying an album to hear it i used to buy an album based on whatever the single that i'd heard on the radio and then you'd get to the second side and you'd and you'd say i can't stand this second side i really hate it i wish i hadn't bought this album 6 months later you you think oh i'm sick of hearing that single it's so simple i don't know why i liked it but i love the second mm. side I, you get deep into it and you you find out all stuff that's in there that you didn't realize the first 20 times you listened to it and i think we're going to miss that with the streaming scene that it's all about the first minute if people aren't captured in the first 30 seconds or the first minute they just click off it and go on to something else I think so, but I also think that with with the existence of Bandcamp, if you are such an artist, if you are the, the the more of the slow burn kind of artist, you can create a niche for yourself on Bandcamp, and you can sell your music direct to your fans. So I guess it's I think the issue is not necessarily well. Yeah, maybe you are talking about the same thing. It's one of discovery, right? How do we discover this music? How do we find it? And so clearly, Spotify is not the place to discover a new noise artist or no. <laughs> or somebody who makes industrial tech. Yeah. Right? You, have to, you have to find other platforms that guide you. So, and I know that, you know, the, the trendy word for this, and I hate it, but, you know, the word is curation. We have yes. to find people who cur- curate playlists, whatever, you know, but, but I'm not, I hate that word, but people who point you at things. So I think the real, <sighs> the skill now for music discovery is not to rely on Rolling Stone or even Pitchfork to a lesser extent, yeah. but to really go deeper into, I don't know, um, magazines like, well, maybe, maybe fact mag, but I don't think that's necessarily left field enough, enough for the time that I think the sort of boiler room culture has pushed a lot of interesting stuff to the margins in that space. The same with resident advisor. Yes. But I do find resident advisors <clears throat> podcasts, not, not the DJ set podcast, but their interview podcast. I think it's called, I don't know what it's called now. Actually, it's like it's something else. But but you t- you you get to listen to people, and uh, they tend to bring in more interesting guests. Like I um, think uh, yeah, Bernd Friedman, who oh, right, yeah. is here, and what? so you t- and Jeremy Della, who made that movie about uh, the nascent uh, rave scene in the UK. So you get oh, to yes. hear. So you, all you need is like a you know, like a little thing that will just trigger you and go, oh, I've really got to find out what, you know, what, I don't know. I mean, he just died. Mike Huckabee. What, what does, what music has Mike Huckabee made? Because everyone's making a big deal about him, but yes. I don't know much about him. So I think, yes. yeah. I mean, I think I need create, um, curation 
that because there's just so much music, there's just so much music. And I mm-hmm. think I got into a lot of arguments about the big, uh, the piracy in the beginning of the internet piracy and then streaming and stuff like that. One of the articles that came at, in the early days of Spotify <coughs> mm. in this argument about piracy and Spotify, one of the early articles was saying that only 25% of people have any significant plays on Spotify. Millions of tracks get loaded onto Spotify every week and they don't even get one play. And so if I go on any platform like Tidal or Spotify or Mixcloud or whatever, there's just such a mountain of even just techno. If I'm just looking for techno, there's just such a mountain of stuff all by Mm. people I've never heard of with bizarre names. Is that I admit it, I have Mm. to go to curation and I look for people that I trust like Kirk, like like Tony Charles Surgeon, like that guy Lone. You know, I just look for people and Ben Sims, people like that that are doing playlists or doing charts or whatever. And I might only like three of the tracks of the 20 that they're recommending, but I really like those three. And it has saved me an entire day of trawling through tracks to find those three, you know. So I really need... I really need curation now. I mean, when we were talking about the 90s and buying CDs and everything, when I bought like a Kenny Larkin CD or, or a Speedy J CD, that was oh. out for a year. And I played that CD nonstop for a year. And then when his next one came out a year later, I went out and bought that. But now, you know, people are bringing out EPs randomly. They don't have anything out for six months, and then they have three EPs out in three months, and it's just hard to keep up, and it's hard to know who's doing what. And so I've got, I've got playlists that I follow: Daniel, Mark Avery, and Lone, and Ben Sims. I follow their playlists, and and I listen to the tracks that they like, and and I I find my music through that really. I think that's a good way of doing it. I mean, I listened to your melodic techno playlist or some of it anyway, and and I thought that was great. And there were a couple, I can't remember now what the couple of things were that I'd never heard before. Maybe there was a lone track on there that I'd never heard before. But again, yeah, you just need people to point you in the right direction. I mean, I know with my audience, there's quite a, I know that audiophiles struggle to find new music because a lot of people come to me and go, John, I love your playlists. Now to me, they're quite, I don't, want to, I don't want to downplay them. I mean, they're quite ordinary, you know? I mean, it's just the music I like. But for somebody else who's never heard it before, it could be life-changing. But, you know, you could put something on a playlist and I'd never heard it before, and that could be life-changing. So, yeah, it's just a matter of keeping the information flowing, if you like. It's about, you know, listen to this, try this. But as you say, it's so hard to keep up with all of this yeah. stuff. I mean, I bookmark stuff all the time and never go back to it. No, I'm that's right. like that. I know. Just... Just there's not enough time to, to even keep keep track or keep to follow the artists that I've loved for years. That's a part time job in and of itself. And then I've got like I like to listen to new music and discover stuff. That it's just so time consuming, and I'm not complaining. I, God no, not at all. I mean, it's just it's such a wonderful thing to be able to you know find new music that really really um, what's the word strikes a chord with you. I don't want to use that as a pun, but I just did. So, yeah. I mean, in the day, and back in the day, and it's probably the same now, you know, with your group of friends, 
I think you may be the same as me. I don't know anyone who likes electronic music personally. I know people on the internet who like electronic music. I don't get to see Kurt that often because mm. he lives way across the other side of the country. So my partner, she doesn't like electronic music. None of my neighbors like electronic music. None mm. of the people I know in the local town like it. So you're on your own. And, you know, back in the day when you were at college or when you were playing in a band, everybody liked the same music. And have you heard the latest this album? Have you heard the latest Steely Dan album? Have you heard the latest album? And I think that's what happens with a lot of these electronic music people is that every weekend they are working in Europe at some club or some festival, you know, these Amsterdam festivals and everything, and they're hearing a lot of new music. And they're talking to the other DJs who are saying, have you heard the new track by so-and-so? And so people are discovering new mm. music that way that is not open to me because I'm just sitting in a house in the middle of Somerset where no one's playing electronic music. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's I, the, I'd never heard of this guy, Jay Clark. I think he's been around for 10 years or so. I'd never heard of him. And mm. the Ben Sims he's got a show on NTS called run it red and it's often quite hardcore uh -huh. club. He'll, he will have like 15 minutes of just mainly drums banging away, which I find I admire it, yeah. but I find it hard to listen to. Anyway, he did a playlist the other day with this Jay Clark track on it as latest track on Soma records. And what the track that he put on there is called kicker it's not i don't think it's the lead track on the ep actually what somebody resident advisor were recommending one of the other tracks anyway this is like the best thing i've heard for a long time i just love it it just appeals to me it's got very banging noisy right. drums but going along with the very banging noisy drums he's got these almost contemporary classical very discordant chords that that you wouldn't think would work and they do. And then even more discordant chords that you wouldn't think would work fade in over the top and make it sound the whole thing go up another level. I just think it's so clever. And I just love that kind of thing. And I think the best, the best techno or the best electronic music is often made by people who really know what they're doing. The people Mm. who've studied classical music. They've studied Steve Reich. They've studied Philip Glass and Miles Davis. A lot of the people I know that are doing electronic music really know Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, really know Philip Glass and contemporary music concrete or whatever. And they're doing really interesting things in electronic music. And so it's very easy to buy a copy of Ableton Live and chuck a couple of loops together and make a techno track but the the stuff that rises to the top is the stuff that takes it to the next level i think you have been listening to the darko audio podcast with me john darko and our guest today chris whitten music by ben pitt